All right, welcome everyone to a new episode of the NeuroFlex podcast, formerly known as the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. And on the show with us today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Barbara Minton. Dr. Minton has a joint PhD in developmental and child clinical psychology from the University of Denver. She lived and worked in Alaska for 12 years, developing innovative programs to address issues in rural mental health and services for severely emotionally disturbed children and their families. She does individual therapy, consultation, psychological testing, and neurofeedback, along with teaching and mentoring students and professionals. Dr. Minton is a licensed psychologist in the state of Idaho, board certified in neurofeedback, and a diplomat in quantitative EEG. Uh, so Barb, really excited to have you on the show with us today. Thanks. So tell me a little about your just introduction to the field of neurotherapy. How did you originally hear about some of these different therapies and get exposed to the technologies? Well, kind of, kind of random, like probably a lot of other people, but I was actually working on uh, my hypnotherapy skills and I had been trained in hypnotherapy and I thought, well, it's a good idea. I think I'll get certified in hypnotherapy. And I had to find a mentor to do that. And the closest mentor I could find to Boise where my practice is located was down in Salt Lake City at the University of Utah Medical School, a guy named Corey Hammond, which some people might recognize his name. He was one of the, or is one of the kind of first innovators in neurofeedback, biofeedback for the brains. But he was actually, he's actually an amazing hypnotherapist. So I went down to meet with him and we were talking about hypnotherapy. And I saw this little rectangular black box with a bunch of holes in the top on his desk. And I said, oh, by the way, what's that? And he said, Oh, and he picked this thing up and showed it to me. And it was a, a discovery amplifier made by BrainMaster. And he says, this is an amplifier to do neurofeedback. And I said, oh, what is neurofeedback? And that's how it started. And he said, well, neurofeedback is a form of biofeedback where you actually train the brain to go into more, you know, into better patterns to help people resolve whatever it is they want to work on, whether it's stress or peak performance or anxiety or depression or this or that. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And I went home and um, I actually at the time was living in a small town uh, here in Idaho up in the mountains. And I have, you know, I've been interested in rural mental health forever. And so I actually had a client who was in a very remote part of Idaho who came to me in this small town. I had a practice associated with the hospital there. And they said um, their child had been diagnosed with autism and it was pretty severe. And, you know, what could they do for treatments? And so I started looking in the literature and came upon neurofeedback for people who have autism spectrum and thought, well, maybe this is something people in rural areas might be able to do because they just aren't going to have access to, you know, huge behavioral programs or experts that are going to come into the home or things like that. And so I was like, oh, I remember Dr. Hammond 
had one of those little black boxes. And that's what started it off. And uh, so we actually, I got trained and we actually did neurofeedback on this kid and had an amazing effect. And after being in the field for so long and doing other interventions, for me, the real uh, excitement about neurofeedback was for people with ADHD and people with autism spectrum disorder that I really didn't have a lot of luck, you know, treating and with other modalities, talk therapy, for example. And why do you think specifically ADHD and autism respond really well to neurofeedback? Well, I think other things respond well to neurofeedback too, obviously. I think neurofeedback is a really good, um, because it regulates the brain well, it's just good across a variety, variety of things, including just keeping, including just optimizing a healthy person. Um, but I had not, you know, you can make progress with many people with depression and anxiety, but it's very hard to make progress. So if you do talk therapy with someone with depression and anxiety, you can help them oftentimes. Talk therapy with someone with ADHD, you know, is pretty rough. Yeah, you can teach them about what ADHD is, and you can help them make accommodations, but you're not really changing the essential nature of the disorder. And I think with neurofeedback, you really do start to change what the brain is doing, not just learning accommodations so that you can function better. I'd love to, I'd love to discuss some of the abnormalities in brain activity, maybe both for uh, ADHD and autism, and then kind of talk about how neurofeedback goes about kind of correcting some of those dysregulations. So let's start like say with, with ADHD, can you tell me a little about kind of what, what is happening in the brain electrically and then what your usual strategy is with, with neurofeedback to treat ADHD? Yeah, so, um, you know, what's really great about being able to look and see what the brain is doing is that you find out that there isn't just one answer to ADHD. ADHD isn't a unitary kind of construct. And um, I'm, I'm also gonna say that one of the things we need to do is broaden our focus a little bit. So I don't know if you've seen, I, I believe it was just yesterday or the day before a paper came out that said a whole subset of people who have been diagnosed with ADHD um, actually had uh, some effect on their symptoms when they started to take a multivitamin. So, you know, when we look at these disorders, Let's see, is rambling allowed? Of course, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to ramble here a bit. All yours, yeah. So way back in the Pleistocene era, after I got out of graduate school and I went to Alaska, I was really interested in um, mental health in rural Alaska and in Alaska Native villages. And I actually got some money from the National Institute of Mental Health to do a study on um, mental health in two villages, Norvik and Kayana up there in Alaska. And so I went up and met with the natives in the little villages and said, 
well, we want to do, you know, would you like to do this study on mental health and mental health needs? And they said, well, that's pretty interesting. Um, but you realize that mental health is something white people invented, don't you? And it really took me aback. You know, I, it, it was one of those moments that was so compelling because I, it was just like, oh my gosh, you're right. Like we have created these cultural constructs around disorders and health that other cultures and other people do not share. And the story in Alaska goes on from there, but I'm gonna skip that and come back to ADHD and say that ADHD, people with ADHD have a set of characteristics that in our culture, we are choosing to see in a certain way. And we are kind of choosing to see them as dysfunctional in the environments in which we put them. So ADHD can be the behaviors of ADHD, sort of inattentiveness and looking around and fidgeting or just spacing off. Um, might be really adaptive in certain situations, but they're not adaptive if you're sitting in school supposed to be doing what the teacher says. So when we look at something like ADHD, we wanna ask the question, well, what is causing this behavior? And there can be a lot of things that are causing it, right? So if you're a highly gifted person and you're extremely bored, you're gonna be fidgeting around and not paying attention. Now, is that really ADHD? Yes, you meet the criteria for it if we go through the DSM, but we might, if we actually did a quantitative electroencephalogram and looked at the different waves that are firing in your brain, it's gonna look pretty different than someone who has been diagnosed with ADHD because they have trauma at home, their dad's beating up on their mom and they don't have enough food and so they're malnourished and then also they're super anxious all the time. And we all know when we're anxious all the time, we're just kind of looking around and we can't pay attention. So when we map that person's brain and we see an excess of high frequency activity that's associated with anxiety, as opposed to our really smart kid who's bored brain, and we don't see those waves, we're gonna start thinking about what we call ADHD in very different ways. Okay. And, and then getting into specifically, like what say in different people, say there's a couple of examples of, of different individuals that may have been diagnosed with ADHD. Maybe one is due to the sort of the level of material in the classroom is just not challenging them, whereas someone else, maybe trauma-based, maybe someone else, it really is more of just a classical ADHD sort of presentation like what might some of the changes or differences in their QEG or the electrical activity in their brain be? Yeah, so I think the classical, what we would call the real ADHD person would be the one that has excess theta, excess frontal theta. So their frontal lobes, which are helping you focus and pay attention, which is the frontal lobe kind of process or executive functioning, organizing and planning the the brain is not firing quickly enough. And so 
those functions aren't happening as efficiently as they could be. That would be the classic ADHD presentation. Um, the, you know, the one of this, of the gifted or highly gifted person who's bored, you know, oftentimes their brain might look unique, but neurofeedback's not the intervention for them. The intervention for them is an academic intervention, right? We're not trying to change their brain to get them to tolerate a learning situation that isn't designed well for them. Um, the kid who's anxious needs to have the anxiety dealt with, and that's probably a multimodal intervention. I, I think one thing I would like uh, colleagues and others to understand is that neurofeedback, like many interventions, often works best and is synergistic if you look at the big picture and if you intervene in the big picture. So there's so many times um, that there's something else going on uh, that's contributing to a diagnosis of ADHD. And let me just give you another kind of interesting example, which is I had a person who had kind of classic ADHD, so excess theta in the frontal lobes. Frontal lobes are kind of offline, working a little bit too slowly. We get their frontal lobes working more quickly through by using neurofeedback, and they come back about eight months later, and they're saying, wow, my ADHD is back. And I mapped them, and actually their brain looked like it had, just didn't have very much energy in it. We didn't see the frontal theta that had been there before. And this person, meanwhile, had gone from high school to college. And I said, well, hmm, well, what have you been eating? And they said, pasta, chips. And what was the third one? It was like mac and cheese, ramen, and something else, basically a complete carbohydrate diet. And I said, well, why don't you go back? Here's, let's sit down and look at some of the, you know, foods you should be eating, eat all these foods, come back in a month, came back in a month, we remapped them, brain looks beautiful. ADHD symptoms went away. So, you know, the kid who I said might be anxious and they're having issues at home, Neurofeedback, the goal of neurofeedback isn't to make your brain all fine so that you are, you know, if you're living in a traumatic situation, that situation has to be resolved. Um, neurofeedback is going to make your brain more normal, but a normal person or, or a normal kid should be upset when there's trauma. So, you know, these are some of the complexities I've kind of jumped right into. Um, when we come to thinking about how the brain works, but the brain is always working within a context. It's working within a nutritional context. It's working within a context of sleep. It's working within a, a social context. Um, and if we wanna be the most effective clinicians, we wanna address all those contexts. That's something I wanted to ask you about as far as, I mean, it's really interesting as far as uh, someone with the, you know, home environment that's sort of preventing them from being able to progress with neurofeedback, uh, you know, due to, due to those circumstances. I was just wondering, you know, does it ever work in the other direction as well in, in terms of neurofeedback actually helping a kid who's going through some adverse events, you know, at home actually become, you know, more resilient 
in terms of dealing with those stressors because they have, you know, kind of a better, a better functioning brain? I think it does, uh, or it can. It kind of depends on the severity of the issue. Um, but it's always better to try to get those parents and families in because neurofeedback and, and talk therapy are, are, or family therapy are so synergistic. Um, and when you can have them both working in the same direction, you're just going to have a lot better impact. But I wouldn't say that neurofeedback is a waste of time unless there's really severe issues. But I have had people come in basically in abusive relationships. Adults come in in abusive relationships and they're, they're like, well, my goal is to feel better about this abusive relationship. It's kind of like, well, maybe that's not exactly the right goal. You know, let's talk about what that really means. Um, and can you really make the brain bulletproof, you know, like, can you be in a war and make your brain bulletproof? So nothing in the war ever bothers you. I hope neurofeedback can, would never be able to do that. That's not our goal. Our goal is to make brains normal. So they're reacting to things in a normal way. Got it. Okay. And now how about in terms of autism, what exactly is going awry in the brain? And, and then how do you go about regulating that with neurofeedback? You know, I, I think we don't, just like a lot of disorders, we don't totally know this. We certainly see certain characteristics. Uh, you know, people with autism tend to have excess theta, that sort of pre-sleep wave in the brain. They tend to have excess high beta, which is sort of an anxiety kind of agitation wave in the brain. They tend to have low alpha. Alpha is that sort of zen calming wave in the brain. We also know that there are you know, a lot of people with autism spectrum disorders that the information transfer in the brain, these long kind of fibers that transfer information tend to be shortened. Um, we also tend to see mirror neurons, which are neurons that help us watch and sort of learn by echoing other people's behavior. Those tend to be offline. So we know all these things, but I don't think, um, I'm not sure if, I don't know that anybody has a complete handle on what's causing autism. We can see these sorts of issues in the brain and we can train them. And what's really interesting about autism spectrum, I think most people who do neurotherapy, um, and by neurotherapy, I'm adding in things like pulsed electromagnetic frequencies or TDCS, transcranial direct current stimulation, or some of these other things that maybe we do or don't want to talk about. Um, but you'll see really massive improvement in some people. And in other people, they just improve somewhat. So it's like with autism spectrum disorders, almost everybody gets some benefit, but it's not necessarily curative. Where even with pretty severe anxiety disorders and other things, we seem to get a stronger um, remission rate. But we also know that autism spectrum, just to go back, that some people with autism spectrum respond um, better if they 
do the gluten and casein free diet, right? So there's probably a lot of things going on um, with people on the autism spectrum that we don't totally understand in terms of their complete kind of physiological system. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes, yeah, so that's that's so interesting. I mean, the couple connections that you mentioned with diet in terms of with with both disorders that you're talking about with with the anxiety or with um, rather ADHD getting a lot worse. And, and the, that individual you mentioned went going to college, eating, you know, all those high carb foods. And I'd remember I actually wrote a paper back in college about the uh, kind of examining the links between ADHD and sugar consumption. You know, so there's a clear link there. Um, but, you know, for, for people who, who still don't believe that there's uh, that diet has an impact on brain performance, I think it's, you know, it's pretty, pretty clear nowadays, just from the research. Yeah, I actually um, got certified as an epigenetic coach and also um, got certified as a Bredesen provider for, I don't know if you know about Dale Bredesen. He's a I do, yeah. yeah. And one of the really interesting things, both about epigenetics and about um, the Bredesen protocol is all these things are very multimodal. So, you know, in epigenetics, what you're talking about is you inherit a certain gene, but the expression of that gene depends on many factors. That gene may or may not be expressed. And so what we wanna do is turn on our positive genes, the things that are for longevity and good self-regulation and all that stuff. And we wanna turn off the negative ones and we can actually make lifestyle choices or take supplements that have an impact on many of these genes and will actually change their genetic expression. And then what's really interesting about the Bredesen protocol for cognitive decline is they're really saying, look, we're not gonna find, the probability of us finding a magic bullet to turn people's brains around is pretty low. And we keep trying to find these unitary interventions. But in fact, if you have a whole bunch of holes in your roof, plugging one of them isn't gonna do any good. You have to plug them all. So the interventions involve trying to find out what is behind the issues in your brain. So is, is there an inflammatory state in the, in the system that needs to be addressed? Is there problems processing sugar that need to be addressed? Is there just not enough energy and resources in the system? Um, is there some toxicity in the system? Is there a vascular issue? Um, and is there head injury? Uh, because head injury, as you know, you know, I'm sure well, over time um, can really result in some pretty severe damage to the brain. And as you systematically go through and address all these issues through lifestyle uh, and medications or supplements or whatever it is you need, you're actually able to turn around many, many dementias. And I, I just love that approach because I think if we set neurotherapy within a larger context like that, we're gonna find the power of neurotherapy just becomes exponentially larger. And that's super exciting to me. That's what's so exciting uh, would be to do this more integrative approach. I agree. I agree. I mean, I think that there'd be tremendous benefit of just like the same way people get a yearly physical and blood tests. It's like if, if 
a doctor was to their primary care doctors were, were to just run QEGs every year on people. And then they could see like someone comes into the doctor and is like, oh, you know, I've been experiencing all this brain fog and depression and anxiety. And it didn't used to be that way. They could like just go back and check what their brain used to look like and what it looks like now. And you know, compare and contrast, like I, and that's just one application I thought of, but yeah, I, I feel like just integrating it, like you're saying, there could be so many great uses of neurofeedback. Yeah. And I think we're a long ways from that. Although I just read a couple of days ago in the Journal of American Medical Association, you know, uh, there was, there was an article discussing about this sort of allopathic approach we all have to things like wait, we wait till a symptoms happens and then we try to fix things. And they were talking about the fact that, um, medical care is now about 20% of the gross national, whatever, GDP, what does that stand for? The gross money. Product, <laughs> gross gross natural, national product. We're spending a lot of money on healthcare. And just think about this for someone that has a head injury or dementia or even ADHD, because we know ADHD, more jobs, more divorces, more car wrecks, more just accidents in general, if we can start to get ahead of these things, uh, we're going to save a lot of money in the long run. But it's very hard right now that even people in the system that want to do this, it's really hard for them. Like I went to my, when I had my physical, my annual physical exam this year, I said to my doctor, well, can you draw XYZ blood? Because I want to you know, check, this is part of the Bredesen prevention protocol. And I want to check, you know, make sure my inflammation's low and this and that. And she was like, well, I have to find some bad, I have to find something wrong for your insurance to pay for those. I can't just draw them because we want to prevent dementia from happening. So we have a ways to go. Yes. Yeah. I'm sure it sounds like as you tell that story, I mean, how you disagree with that. And I, I certainly, yeah, that approach doesn't, doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, it, I, I say yeah. all the time, you know, working with like peak performers, like, you know, in the same way you, you still go and exercise at the gym when, you know, everything's feeling good. You actually might take a break from exercising, right. When your shoulder really hurts, you might actually not go to the gym for a little while, but that how we have such a backwards approach to like brain health and not seeking help. And unless there is some severe problem, it's just, it doesn't make much sense to me, but that's kind of just the way things are right now. Yeah. And, um, you know, bless my doctor's heart. She, we dug up family history of various people that had stuff going on to justify these tests, but, you know, it's very hard to work in a system like this. Um, and optimizing is actually really, really interesting because, um, you know, people who are optimizers really understand, I think they tend to be more conscientious and they tend to be less in denial than probably a lot of other people. Um, that you really understand that the things that you're doing today are changing your life down the road. And 
somehow making that connection, I think is so important. Like the choice you make for lunch today or whether you choose to get out for that walk, these things are gonna be changing your life when you're 80 years old. But you know, that's a hard, that's a hard sell for a lot of people. Yeah, definitely a paradigm shift for sure for, for a lot. Yeah. So you you nicely foreshadowed something a, a few minutes earlier in the conversation that I was going to bring up, which is some of the other different neurotechnologies besides neurofeedback, such as you, you brought up pulsed electromagnetic frequency uh, therapy, along with um, like the transcranial direct current, or there's also, also alternating current or pink noise, random noise. Tell me about what what's your thoughts on some of the other modalities besides neurofeedback and maybe what they work really well for um, in your particular clinical experience? Well, I think it's going to be interesting to see where we are 10 to 15 years from now, um, as we have more and more of a research base on these. Um, these are really considered experimental interventions right now. And I live in a very conservative part of the country. And so my clients might be less likely to want to uh, use these modalities than people in other parts of the country. Um, but so I tend to start with neurofeedback as a, if I'm doing just a brain-based intervention, I tend to start with neurofeedback. I like neurofeedback because the research base is there. It, you're just rewarding the brain for doing something. It's a very non-invasive kind approach, right? Um, so you're, every time the brain starts to go into a new pattern, you're saying, oh, that's so wonderful. Just do more of that. Um, and it's, it's a very, I love that too for people who have trauma, by the way, I think, or kids, people who don't want to talk about things or can't talk about things, you can actually feel better without having to tell this whole horrible story. I think it's really, really beautiful. Um, got off on a little tangent there. But um, what I, when I tend to use uh, these other stimulation technologies would be as an adjunct to neurofeedback, or if someone isn't responding to neurofeedback, um, then I'll often use these because PEMF, so pulsed electromagnetic frequency, doesn't force the brain to fire. It creates a pattern and encourages the brain to fire. And then TDCS actually does put more of a current in the brain and increases the neuronal firing or decreases the neuronal firing, depending on how you have it set by, you know, 10 to 20%. Um, so I think used in a correct way, this can really help the brain. And I, I feel like over time, these will become a bigger and bigger part of what people are doing because when they are, people respond more quickly to them. And so it's really nice to go in if you're really depressed and feel something in the first session. Wow, I feel so much better. And you did 20 minutes of TDCS on them. It's kind of amazing. And in your experience, like how, how long does it usually take for people to start noticing something's happening or experience the benefits of neurofeedback? You know, there's probably people that use it more than I do that could give you a better answer to that question. Um, I found it really variable. Some people just feel it right away, but I had 
know, we don't, un- there's so much we don't understand about neuroplasticity. About, gosh, six or seven years ago, I had a gal come in and she said she was in her 40s and she had had just absolutely horrible intractable depression. She'd tried everything and she'd had this for 20, 25 years. It was awful. She did five sessions of neurofeedback and she was like, oh, I'm all better and walked out. Now, like, what the heck? You know, that's really, really unusual, but she's somebody whose brain just for some reason responded to um, neurofeedback in a very powerful way. Most of my clients uh, are there in neurofeedback for a range of 40 to 60 sessions. And the more severe and complex the situation is, I, so I tend to get like a lot of people in this field, I tend to get people with severe and complex things going on. So not just ADHD, but ADHD plus trauma, plus head injury, plus this and that. So, you know, that's a little bit different than someone who comes straight in, like I have ADHD and everything else in the, in my life is great. Um, But I do think, um, you know, some of the research that I've looked at And my experience with something like TDCS, I haven't done a lot of TACS, although I know there's a lot of people who use it quite a bit, um, is it's very fast. I have had people feel it within the first session, first and second session, but I've also had people that I've done TDCS on that I've done 25 sessions on and they say they don't feel a thing. So go figure, you know? individual differences and we have to start looking at what is behind this like does their brain not have enough energy to maintain a response um you know can't you can't run a marathon eating 800 calories a day right you can't train for a marathon eating 800 calories a day so if you're not if you don't have the energy in your brain you're not going to respond to some of these modalities i think probably we could get better at um asking a lot of these more complex questions. Mm-hmm. Did I answer your question? <laughs> yeah, definitely. So yeah, in, in addition to kind of the, well, a couple very common questions that I get asked, and I'm sure you do too, one being the one I just asked you as far as, you know, when when can I start experiencing the benefits of, of something like neurofeedback, but then also in terms of how long, if those, if people are benefiting, how long the changes actually stick. And for me, when I answer that question, I always say, you know, it depends if you're to go out, if you're to start, you know, sleeping two hours a night and eating Cheetos, you know, for every meal of the day and not exercising, it's like your brain is not going to have the the raw kind of ingredients and, and energy as you're alluding to, you know, to maintain those sort of changes. Um, but what, what's your take on, on how, how much, the, the, the changes as the result of neurofeedback actually stick? Well, I say the exact same thing you just said. I, I rarely, rarely have anybody come back. Um, and, the, you know, a couple people that have come back, one was that story I told you about the entire carb diet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did also have someone come back who had an anxiety disorder and I remapped that person and the maps looked great. And I said, well, let's, let's talk. And in fact, stuff was going on 
in life and she was having a normal anxiety response to something she should have had anxiety about. Um, so I think, I mean, from what I hear from my clients that have, you know, I've seen 10 years ago or worked with 10 years ago, um, they're doing great. And I just had uh, a report from someone who had bipolar disorder that I trained and um, they're doing great 10 years later. So, and I think that's pretty consistent with the literature on ADHD, which is really the only one I know that we have long-term follow-ups on. So I think that's the exciting thing that when the brain goes into a better configuration, it likes that it wants to stay there and there's biological reasons that it wants to stay there. So, but yeah, can you mess yourself up? Yeah, if you don't eat right or, you know, do too many drugs, <laughs> get in a car wreck. Yeah, it doesn't make you bulletproof. That's definitely good to hear that, that the brain does have that kind of desire to stick with those changes. Um, in terms of, uh, I just lost my train of thought. Good thing I don't record these live because I can just edit this. <laughs> but if you would, right if now. you did, that would be cool because everyone would be like, oh, we all know just how he feels. Right. <laughs> Not enough neurofeedback. He didn't do enough neurofeedback. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you were talking about did the changes hold? Yeah. Um, what was the next thing I was going to ask? Um, oh yeah. Uh, so I was just gonna, you know, comment on the fact that it it seems pretty remarkable too that that the changes or that that what you said about people not returning for neurofeedback uh, very often, if at all. Um, that's pretty powerful because I mean, I, I use these sort of technologies, mostly neurostimulation at a, at a rehabilitation center, working with, you know, treating substance abuse and, you know, seeing that whole, you know, line of work where it's just, you see constant, you know, relapses and constant readmits, you know, it's, it's pretty remarkable to hear that, that you've been able to achieve, you know, such success with neurofeedback or you're not where people aren't constantly having to come back. I think that that speaks a lot to its efficacy. Yeah, and I, I do rarely see that. I will say though, I have, I kind of learned over time, people that are actively using substances, I've tried several times to train them because they're like, they basically want the neurofeedback to get them to stop using. I have not been successful with that. Um, people that are active, whatever you're putting in, whatever, you know, weed or cocaine or alcohol if you're a severe drinker these i think that the chemicals that are really just flooding the brain just make the neurofeedback ineffective and i have if you know i think it's a lot easier to treat those people in an inpatient setting where they don't have access to whatever they're addicted to um, it's pretty hard to do it on an outpatient setting right absolutely well, Bart, we're coming up on to the end of the show. Um, I really, really enjoyed our discussion today. Any, any closing thoughts in terms of just, you know, maybe where you see kind of either your future in the field of neurotherapy or just where, you know, maybe the field is going as a whole? You know, I think, um, 
it, it's just going to be interesting to see. Uh, I think that people are definitely looking for alternatives to traditional um, medication approaches to mental health. And in that way, I see that there's a really bright future for things like neurofeedback. And I think as we learn more and more about some of these medications, especially things like benzodiazepines and some of the other ones that really are not salubrious for the brain in the long run, um, I think there's a very bright future for these technologies. To me, it's going to be interesting to see what happens as we get more consumer grade uh, you know, there's the consumer market is now being flooded with things that are sort of um, trying to do what a professional can do with neurofeedback, and that is a bit concerning to me. But we'll we'll see how it all plays out. It's going to be an interesting ride. Indeed, yeah. yeah. We'll see what happens. Uh, well, Barb, if uh, if the listeners want to connect with you or find out more about neurofeedback, neurotherapy or anything? Are there any sort of resources you'd like to direct them to? Well, I think a good resource just for neurofeedback is to go to isnr.org, which I know a lot of people are familiar with, so that um, they are the big, one of the big neurofeedback um, kind of associations, and they have a lot of great information on their website. Uh, and then there's aapb.org. Are they a .org? I think they're a .org. Uh, but people can also feel free to email me if they'd like, and I can direct them to resources. And my email is just drbminton, D-R-B-M-I-N-T-O-N at gmail.com. Great. And I did just verify AAPB is a, is a .org. Okay. So, yep. <laughs> Um, and for those of you who enjoyed the show, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's NeuroFlex. You can see the full podcast episodes, uh, the videos, along with podcast clips on that channel. And also go ahead and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or any of the other major audio streaming platforms. We are on them all, NeuroFlex Podcast. So Barbara, again, I wanted to thank you so much for coming on the show today and, and sharing all of your knowledge and expertise. You're very welcome.